we've been talking about resurrection, mass resurrection. The Gemara was focused on the story of Ezekiel's dry bones. And we had multiple opinions as to who those dry bones were and where precisely that miracle took place. In the third narrative, these were people who were murdered by Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of the Babylonian Empire. And that segued into the story of three brave young Jewish men who literally set the world on fire. They were saved from fire, but they set the world on fire. Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah. And in a previous class, we talked about their own fallout or the postmortem of their being saved and their, if you will, <laughs> their journey into obscurity that followed this international fame, this story that literally lit up people all over the world. Somebody's missing from this narrative. And tonight we're going to try to solve the mystery of the missing prophet. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are young people taken into the king's charge, made a part of his apparatus. But there was a Jewish prophet who had actually captured the king's respect long before. And he's a key figure, a very important individual in this particular time in history. The Jewish people, exilically dispersed under the persecution of Nebuchadnezzar, and is not mentioned. He somehow seems to have played a cameo role or really flown beneath the radar. His name is Daniel, the prophet Daniel. And tonight's Gemara is going to focus on the prophet Daniel, or more accurately, the prophet Daniel who was not around. Says the Gemara, Daftzadeh Gimel Amad Aleph, page 93, side A, after we heard about the retreat into anonymity of Hananiah, Mishael, Vazariah, the Gemara now returns to try and understand the essential bare bones of the story itself. And in order to understand and appreciate the story itself, the Gemara now asks, so where was Daniel? We're in the middle of the wide lines And to where did the prophet Daniel escape? How come he is not mentioned entirely in this narrative? So Rav taught Daniel had left. He was away on a mission. To dig a river or a canal in Tiberias, 
Now I have to tell you that although Rashi follows this version of the Gemara and he says Lachper to dig to bring a river into Tiberias it sounds odd because Tiberias is on the shores of Lake Kinneret and because of this there's actually another version in Rashi Lishna Acheres Lemichra Nahara not Bitveria but Bitura the word Tura in Aramaic is a mountain and it seems as Rashi says Bahar in the mountain it seems that the notion was that Daniel would find underground springs and he would be able to conduct the water so that these various waterways would converge and that a river would emerge we'll come back to this soon but that's where Daniel was that's Rav's opinion he went to establish the waterways he went to establish a water supply in Israel Vishmuel Omar and Shmuel says La Suye Bizra Das Pasta he was also according to Shmuel in Israel but his purpose was sent by Nebuchadnezzar to bring seeds and to plant fodder for animals I've seen some translate this as clover although I'm not certain so it may have been clover or something else like that so that when the people would return to the land of Israel there would be ample grazing area Rabbi Yechanan, who was elder than both Rav and Shmuel, who had remained in Eretz Yisrael, master of the Talmud Yerushalmi, teacher of Rav and Yechanan, he says, La'asuye chaziri da Alexandria shal Mitzrayim. He went to bring, you'll forgive me, pigs, hogs, from Alexandria of Egypt. Now, before we go further, the Gemara is going to analyze this business with the hogs. But before we go further, there's a number of issues that I think we should, we should discuss. Not the smallest of which is, how is the Gemara so sure Daniel wasn't actually present? The Gemara is like 100% sure Daniel wasn't there. They just want to know where he went. Maybe he was there. And why couldn't we say that he didn't bow? And you're going to say, what do you mean? If he didn't bow, he gets thrown into a fiery furnace. He did bow. Daniel would never bow. Impossible to conceive of that. So the Marsha says, I mean, the question would become that he wouldn't be thrown in a fiery furnace because as we will soon read in the Gemara, Nebuchadnezzar regarded Daniel is a godhead. He believed that uh, he was some kind of deity, some kind of divine creature. He bowed before him. He wanted to bring him offerings. So he wouldn't throw his god. If he believed Daniel's a god, how could he throw his man-god into the fire? So the Maharsha suggests that you couldn't take that approach. Because whilst Nebuchadnezzar himself might have 
held Daniel in the highest of esteem, and seen him as a god of sorts, ultimately, this was a question of public opinion. Nebuchadnezzar had thrown down the gauntlet. He had insisted that everybody bow to this idol, to this image. And even if he personally habered feelings of, how do you say this? Not love or awe, but actually he habered feelings of considering Daniel a god. I'm not sure what, what those feelings would even be called. Maybe agape or something like that. He had these feelings towards Daniel that would work for him personally, but it wouldn't work for the public eye. The public eye would not appreciate that. And that would undermine Nebuchadnezzar's sort of drive to create this homage that would be paid in unison to this God he created. And because of that, because the people didn't see Daniel as a God, Nebuchadnezzar would not be able to save him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was a king. He had the ability to literally truncate people's lives. But even a king like that still needs popular opinion. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't have the political capital to pull that off. He still had to deal with the not popular vote, but popular sentiment. And if Nebuchadnezzar had thrown down the gauntlet and said everybody has to bow, the crowds would have clamored for Daniel to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And as such, Nebuchadnezzar would not have had a choice. So therefore, the Gemara is certain, says the Marsha, that he had gone elsewhere. He must have gone elsewhere. And the question, of course, is where might he have gone? So it's really interesting that the Malbim suggests that all three of these Amoraim, Rav, Shmuel, and Rav Yechanan, in each situation, in each circumstance, he says the mission was to be able to lay the foundation for the rebuilding of the second Jewish commonwealth, the second, so to speak, reestablishment, second coming of Jewish people back to Israel, the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty. Why? He says, well, according to Rav, it's a question of waterways. That's not hard to understand at all. According to Shmuel, it's a question of being able to raise livestock, to create grazing, to create a circumstance, a situation for economic prosperity. Makes sense. But the business of bringing hogs from Alexandria, <laughs> how does that help establish the Israeli economy? So generally speaking, the responsibility of government is to provide safety and security, as well as economic prosperity. If your government is exposing you to danger on a regular basis, you get a problem. Because your government's first responsibility is to ensure the safety of its citizens. If you live in a country where the economy is collapsing and the government does nothing to assist people to be able to live, you get a problem. So in the first two instances, Daniel is laying the foundations for the rebuilding of a Jewish government, the rebuilding of a Jewish commonwealth. We're going to have to have a successful economy. We're going to have to have an infrastructure. You need water. It's interesting. The, when the state of Israel was reestablished, one of the major achievements was creating a waterways. And actually, Prime Minister Levi Eshkol, that was his great contribution. He knew the waterways in Israel, like they said, like the back of his hand. 
He built that because that's infrastructure, basic infrastructure. So Daniel here is going to build basic infrastructure to plant aspasta or clover or feed. He's building a circumstance, a situation, so there's an economy. Raising cow or sheep or goats, that's an economy. And going to Mitzrayim to bring home hogs, that is ensuring national security. How? So the Malbim says something very interesting. He says at that time, the finest hogs were to be found in Alexandria. And we'll hear about that in a moment. They actually did all kinds of things to protect their self-interest, to ensure that these hogs wouldn't get exported elsewhere, that they'd be able to maintain their edge. Daniel understood that in the end, there would be a clash between Egypt and between Babylon. Egypt would not remain a vassal state of Babylon. And if there's a clash between Babylon and between Egypt, guess who's right in the middle? Israel. And one of the things that they could have gone to war over was if Egypt had what Babylon wanted. And the thing that Babylon wanted more than anything else at this point was those prized hogs. They were larger, very, very healthy hogs. So Babylon wants the hogs. Go figure. A rabbi, a Jewish prophet, is the one who's smuggling hogs to the empire who destroyed the Beis Hamikdash, so that they won't be jealous when Egypt secedes and that a war doesn't unfold. You talk about how as much as things have changed, nothing has changed. This is the intrigue. This is the, the, the back end, the behind-the-scenes story of how the Jewish people reestablished themselves in the land of Israel. I guess the last one they expected to find hogs or pigs in his luggage was when they were having a rabbi go through the border, as you'll see in a minute. So the Gemara says like this. The Gemara says... Oh, by the way, before I continue, I should also mention that, you know, a Jewish, Jewish people are not allowed to go back to Egypt. So the Rif comments and he says, he says, yeah, we're not allowed to go back to live in Egypt, but you can go there temporarily to be able to find some, uh, shall we say, missions accomplished. Even if it's something as small as making a living. But for Daniel, it was much larger than that. At any rate... The Gemara now begins to analyze this business with the possibility of Daniel having brought hogs from Alexandria into Bavel, into Babylon. Says the Gemara, how is it possible that Daniel would have removed hogs from Babylon? Vahatanya, and according to others, because this is actually a Mishnah. We know where this Mishnah is. It should have said Vahatanan. That's what the Gilyoni Ashas says. It's Sevatnan, not Vatanya. And as I said, that's because this is actually a Mishnah. But at any rate, whether it's Hatnan or Hatanya, we're talking about the Mishnah says, Toidos Haroife. Oimer, the medical, the physician, Todo said, Ein para vechazira, neither a cow nor a sow, Yoitzim Alexandre Shomitzraim would be allowed to leave. Alexandrian Egypt, without them first 
having removed the womb, so that these cows or sows would not be able to bear offspring. So in that case, the reason they did this is because they didn't want their state secret to be lost. They didn't want their prized animals to be exported elsewhere. This was, this was their, if you will, their, their magic to be able to pull off the success in their economy. They had something for which there was great demand, but very little supply. And they wanted to keep it that way. And they wanted to have these unique animals being raised there and nowhere else. So the Gemara says, Zutre Aisi. He brought little ones, small ones. Bideloi da'atayu, without declaring it as he went through the border. So he didn't make this an official, hi, I'm here to buy some hogs. He purchased a few small hogs and he smuggled them out of the country. Rashi says, to bring seed that would produce herbs or grass, which in turn serves to feed the animals. Nebuchadnezzar sent him. And that's where he was. Figure out how to do it. Make this work. Another opinion, Shalachai Nebuchadnezzar sent him on a mission. So that he might raise these sows to become large hogs so that they could bear offspring. Because the hogs of Egypt were significantly larger, more impressive than the others. He spoke, he was a Greek doctor. He spoke to the sages and he said, There was this opinion that if the womb was taken, an animal could not live the year. So Toda said, There was no sow or cow that was allowed to leave Egypt. So that they shouldn't be able to proliferate. They shouldn't be able to produce offspring. But nonetheless, they lived. So here you're saying, if the, if the womb is gone, then the animal dies. And Toda says, not, 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 I don't know. I mean, the hogs, the cows, they're taking the womb and it doesn't kill the animal. So the Gemara says, good point. Indeed, you couldn't export hogs from Alexandria, but that is exactly why the Gemara is telling us that Daniel, a rabbi, was sent to bring hogs. Zutra isnayu v'lehelu alibam. He says, how do you smuggle hogs out? I mean, they couldn't be fitted in his palm. Would they fit them in a Samsonite? How did you get the hogs out? So he says, they didn't imagine the lifre v'rivyabari that he brought, he was bringing hogs to raise so that they might proliferate, he, te- he, he said he was going to eat them. He had purchased them for the meat. And so they permitted him to take these baby hogs out without removing the wombs, not realizing that this man had no intention of eating those hogs and every intention of bringing them back to the country he had been sent from so that they might be raised and eventually procreate and create this, uh, a breed of these larger hogs in the land of Bavel. 
Alright, so now we know where Daniel was. Daniel was sent on a mission. A number of possible missions, three different opinions, all of which somehow seem linked to the establishment or the development of the next commonwealth of the Jewish people. So the Gemara now says, Toner Abonam, a rabbi's learned, Shloisha Hoyo There were three parties that were all involved, three parties that were all involved in this machination, in this scheme to send Daniel on a mission so that he wouldn't be there when Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah were thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, it this does not mean that they collaborated, the three, as you'll soon see. It doesn't mean they decided this together. All three parties were working independently of each other. Only one party was aware of what everybody else was doing. It just so happens to be that everybody ended up in the same direction. Now, obviously, HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows what everybody else is doing. So God has his ideas, and God arranges it, because as God arranges it, there's Daniel, who doesn't realize that Hashem is arranging his footsteps per se. He thinks that he is the one who's decided to do this. And then there's Nebuchadnezzar, who doesn't tell Daniel what he's thinking, or even know what Daniel's thinking, but he has a plan as well. So we have three, so to speak, setting plans into motion, and it happens to be the plans all dovetail. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Amar God said, Nezel Daniel mehacha. Let Daniel leave here. Daniel should not be here when this miracle happens. Why? Deloi limru, so they won't say, bizchusei isnatzol. They'll say, well, that these boys were saved by virtue of Daniel. It's Daniel's miracle, not God's miracle. And of course, that's not the Jewish approach. For us, a Rebbe is the notion of a memutza hamachaber. He's an intermediary who serves as a nexus, not by focusing on him, heaven forfend, as separate from the notion of God, but he links you to God. In the simple metaphor, when you look out a glass window and you see a beautiful sunset, you're not marveling at the glass, you're marveling at the sunset. The glass merely enables you to see the sunset. That's called memutza hamachaber. There's an intermediary. You on your own are not capable of seeing with clarity the realities that are beyond the purview of your vision. But the tzaddik is able to elevate you. The tzaddik is able to bring you to your fruition so that you reach your own potential. So that all of a sudden you are able to see and appreciate the presence of God. Without the tzaddik you wouldn't see it. But you're not obsessing over the tzaddik. You're ultimately focused on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Rebbe serves as a memutza hamechaber. It's a nexus, it's a connection that enables us, the Jewish people, to be connected to Hashem. As in the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, who said, I stand between God and you. What does this mean? Moses said, I stand between God and you. Moses stands between God, blocking us from God? No, we the Jewish people, we didn't understand and appreciate. We wouldn't know who God was, so to speak. We wouldn't appreciate what Yiddishkeit is, if not for Moshe. It was Moses who opened their eyes so that we could see and know God. That's a mamutza hamachaber. In outside the Jewish people, when there was figures, great figures, they became a mamutza hamafsik. They became an intermediary 
who served as a, a, a division, a barrier. Instead, the people focused on the barrier or the intermediary without realizing that the intermediary's point was only to bring them to God. It's like, you know, the, mail, the mailman comes and brings you mail. You kiss the mailman. It's not the mailman's gift. The mailman's just bringing you the money. He is merely a messenger. The messenger ultimately links you back to the one who sent. We see the Rebbe as the ultimate messenger. Hashem gave him such extraordinary gifts and he utilized those, dedicated every single ounce of his wherewithal to elevating the Jewish people so that we could be closer to Hashem. But Hashem knew that's not the way the non-Jewish perspective is. He knew that the pagan perspective would be if Daniel was there, we wouldn't say Daniel connected these boys, elevated them, lifted them up, prayed to Hashem. They would say, Daniel did the miracle. But Hashem, Almighty God, wanted this to be a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, so that not only the Jewish people, but all peoples would recognize the supremacy of God. So God said, not because of the Jewish people's blind spot, but because of the Gentile blind spot, I better get Daniel out of here before they start worshiping him. They'll miss the point. So he took Daniel away so that Daniel would not become the object of this miracle. Instead, Hashem would be the focus of the miracle. That's the first reason the Gemara gives. That's the reason that Hashem made sure Daniel was AWOL. Now, Daniel himself, what was he thinking? He didn't know that Hashem didn't want him to be there. But Daniel was thinking, Daniel Amar, Daniel said, Azel, I got to get out of here. Azel Mehacha, I got I to take off. Why? The Lelikayim be, so it will not be fulfilled with me. Psile Eloheihem Tisrefum Be'esh. The addendums to their gods, the, the remnants of their gods should be burnt in fire. Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar worshipped me. If he worshipped me, even if I am loyal to Hashem, because I am seen by Nebuchadnezzar as a godhead and I can't seem to convince him otherwise, that itself will earn me a death sentence. For this alone I'll be burnt. Not that Daniel was afraid to give his life for Hashem. But he said with Hanani, Mishael, Vazariah, if they make that commitment, Hashem will make a miracle for them. But he won't make that miracle for me. Because after all, by dint of Torah rule, maybe I deserve to be burnt because of the fact that I've been deified. So therefore, Daniel figured he's got to get out of here. He's got to skip town. That was Daniel's perspective. Nebuchadnezzar, what was his perspective? So the Gemara says, Nebuchadnezzar Omar, Yezil Daniel Mehocha. I got to get Daniel out of here. The Leilemru, that they shouldn't say, Kaliel Elahaya Menura. Maniac. He killed his God in fire. Who does that? Here you worship the man, you said he was a God, and then you burnt him. He says, That's not going to look good. And that brings us right, right back around to the idea that Nebuchadnezzar has to have capital, so to speak, to spend. He didn't have the political capital to pull it off. It wasn't going to look good. He couldn't not burn Daniel, as the Marsha said. On the other hand, he didn't want to have to burn Daniel. He didn't know what to do. He knew Daniel wouldn't bow to an idol. The Gemara says, and how do we know that Daniel was actually worshipped? Uminayin the Sagidle. How do we know that Nebuchadnezzar actually created a god out of Daniel? The Chsiv, 
It says in the book of Daniel, in the second chapter, verse 46, it says, Be'dayin malka nevuchadnetzer nofel alan poihi. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrated himself. Ule Daniel sagid v'goymer. And to Daniel he brought, what did he bring? The Pasuk says he brought meal offerings and he brought incense and he brought all kinds of offerings and he bowed to Daniel and he wanted to, so to speak, offer these things before Daniel as an act of homage to show his respect. But of course, Daniel did not want that to happen. And it never, it never happened because Daniel refused. But that's what he wanted to do. The Mitzvah David said, Daniel made sure to say, no, don't worship me. But that's what the Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. And because the Nebuchadnezzar was thinking this, we actually have a fascinating thing. So Hashem doesn't want Daniel there. Daniel doesn't want to be there. And the Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want Daniel to be there. Now, of course, Hashem not wanting you there is good enough. But the Gemara says, just interesting, how it was different reasons. Hashem doesn't want Daniel so that the miracle doesn't get attributed to Daniel. Daniel doesn't want because he believes he's toast. And Vuchadnezzar doesn't want him there because he doesn't want to make him into toast. That wouldn't look good on him. Let's take a look in Rashi. Everybody's pulling in different directions. The focus was, let's get Daniel out of here. So there will not be, will not be fulfilled with him the notion of the appendages of the gods will be burnt in the fire. The Nebuchadnezzar asoy elaha. Nebuchadnezzar made him into a god. Kedichsiv, as it says, ule Daniel sagayed. To Daniel, he prostrated, he kneeled. Vahavale kifsili elehem. He becomes then like an extension, an appendage of the idols. Sham mikra hazeh hoyatseveach alehem lesurfe. It's this verse that would point an accusing finger at Daniel and say, you deserve to get burnt. That's exactly why he was so afraid. So everybody has their reasons, but ultimately, my friends, in the end, things happen exactly as HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants them to happen. And this is the story of how Daniel disappeared. And in the end, Daniel is saved from this, uh, what would have been certain death. And we solve the mystery of the missing prophet. When we come back, in our next classes, we'll talk about other details of this story. There was false prophets who Nebuchadnezzar did throw into the fire, and they did not fare as well as Hanani Mishal of Azariah. But for this, stay tuned, and we shall continue.